They can be, well, I, I'm going to talk quiet. There we go. Got it. All right. They can, be, they can be little ones like that where I, hey, I needed to get connected to the church and I stepped into this small group and that has then led me to all these other things. Uh, we're getting low on staff members. We have a couple other people lined up, uh, but if we were going to keep doing this all year, which is the plan, I'm going to lean into it again and say we're going to need you all to be a part of that. So I want to really encourage you to continue to pray over uh, whether you are in a space where you'd like to share your next step. Again, it could be 30 seconds, it could be five minutes, it could be anywhere in between. So just some, some kind of step that you've taken in your faith and what's happened um, because of it. Uh, let's open with prayer and then we'll jump in. Father God, thank you for this morning, this beautiful sunshine outside. Lord, thank you that we can gather in this space together as a community of believers. Lord, we, we gather here because we, we realize that you've called us to do this life together, that you've given the mission, uh, your spirit's mission to the church. Lord, you've, you've blessed us with, with your presence and then say because of that, that we are, ought to be your hands and feet in this world, that that blessing that we have received, we turn around and share with the world around us. And so, Lord, may we be a place that, that, cares, for each other's, that cares for each other in our, in our hardships, when we're wrestling with things together, uh, when we're hurting together, mourning together, crying together. May we be a place that supports each other in that way. Uh, Lord, we may, may, we, may we be a place that rejoices with each other when things are going well. Uh, may, may Harbor Life Church and all the churches around us be spaces in which people can, can experience a little taste of what eternity looks like, a little taste of heaven on earth. Uh, Lord, may we, may we be aware of the kingdom that's all around us. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. Excuse me. All right, so this morning, uh, we're going to be kicking off a new mini-series. Uh, we're, we're walking through the last week of Jesus' life. Um, we just came out of a series that was really difficult on authority and power. Um, that matters a little bit into what we're moving into today, because what we saw in the last... Uh, little bit of, of Matthew was that Jesus was, was pretty aggressively challenging the religious structures of his day. He, he wrote into the city, um, contrasting, uh, contrasted to, to Pilate, he wrote in on a donkey. Uh, he goes into the temple structure, realizes that people are being exploited there rather than being drawn near to God, and he flips tables. He, he then compares the Israelites to a fig tree that's not producing what they're supposed to, and so their mission will be taken away from them. He, he, he challenged the Pharisees and the Sadducees and, and, and said, hey, even though you're chasing after Yahweh God, you're doing it in such a wrong way that you're missing him as badly as the people in the Old Testament did. And so we've seen those things. Those were hard words to see so far too often, I think, that some of the words that Jesus spoke to the church of the first century um, applied to us as well, where we had to kind of reflect on what are we doing here? Are we being the good news that we're called to be to the rest of the world? Today, we're going to shift gears a little bit into a new mini-series, and I'm hoping it's one you'll enjoy. It's one, I'm not going to lie, I'm a little nervous about, but we'll see how it goes. Um, I also think it could be really fun. Um, so we've, we've gone through the whole book of Matthew so far. We've tackled a lot of topics like what is the kingdom? How do we live into it? How do we interact with a world that sees things differently? Um, and you may have noticed, as we've been working through Matthew, there have been a couple different times that have talked about big topics like heaven and hell, um, and we've skipped over those for now. If you've been following along with us and go, hold on a minute, you promised us we wouldn't skip the hard things, so why did we do that? Well, this is why, because we're coming back around to it right now. So for the next four weeks, we're going to tackle uh, those topics. So we're going to be in Matthew 24 today. 
Uh, but we're going to. So, but this week we're going to set up kind of the end times stuff. Kind of talk a little bit about that. Next week we're going to talk about hell, which is a tough one. Um, ho- hopefully you can join us for that. Uh, we'll follow that up with the rapture. If you've heard of that before, what is that all about? Are we going to fly in the clouds or not? Um, you'll have to come back and find out. Um, and then we'll close it up with talking about heaven. What is heaven all about? Now, I want to say a few things before we actually get started. Um, first, uh, we re- uh, realize that not everyone sees these things in the same way. Right? It's, one of, it's actually, we either, when you look at different denominations across the board, how the world ends and what that means for us is one of the areas we disagree on the most. And, uh, where there's different ideas on what heaven's supposed to look like or hell is supposed to look like or things like the millennium, if you've heard of that, or the tribulation or the rapture, or whether that's not even a thing at all, or all of those different things people have a lot of different ideas on. And and as we go through this series, we'll realize it's because the way the Scripture talks about these things is is the most confusing language that the Scripture uses. We pull a lot of our stuff for heaven and hell out of Revelation, which if you've ever tried to read that, is hard, right? Uh, We pull it out of some of the passages like today with Jesus' words are are difficult to decipher and understand. And so the reason we want to point that out is we realize that there are good, intelligent, smart people who are wrestling with what it means to follow Jesus and what that means for, the, for our eternal existence, uh, who have come to very different conclusions. So obviously, while, while I'm here this morning, I'll present to you the ones I find the most compelling, and you would be, you're going to be able to go out there and find people who think differently, and that's okay. You may think differently. That's okay. Um, what I, we talk about a lot here at Harbor Life is, um, is that one of our goals is, is to engage you with Scripture. We want to try to teach you what we believe to be true, um, but we also want you and the Holy Spirit to wrestle with it as well. Um, I've said it a number of times that in the Old Testament, when God gets a chance to name his people, Jacob is wrestling with an angel, and, at the, and that's the moment in which God changes Jacob's name to Israel saying, my people are going to be known for the rest of time as Israel, which the Bible says means to wrestle with God. One of the defining characteristics of being a follower of Jesus is being willing to wrestle with these difficult things. And so we're going to wade into this realm for the next four weeks here um, and, we're going to, and realizing that we're still going to have things to wrestle with. It's an awesome opportunity to take me up on my offers for coffee. If you want to talk through those things, I'd love to. Love to. We can nerd out for a long time. I don't know what's going on here. It's, gonna, it's playing in. As I talk about end times, it's going to randomly hit, scare you. Uh, this is all part of the plan. This is perfect. Thanks, Craig. Yeah. Um, so, so it means all of those things. The other thing that it is, is that we're realizing that, that, there's, that there can be a ton of baggage and questions left over in these areas, books written on these topics are thick. Um, and so what we're going to be doing uh, to kind of help us tackle some of the questions that might come out of this uh, is we, I said last week that we would start it this week, but we're not going to this week because of the battle GR and a lot of people are going to be gone. But next week, uh, we're actually going to have um, what we call a cutting room floor. So that'll be at night, Sunday night at 6 o'clock during when nor- normally when youth group would go on. Well, we'll gather back together to re-talk about those topics again and talk about some of the things we might have missed. 
So next week, we'll talk about hell and just kind of what some of the, the, the images of that looks like. We can bring in some of the things we talk about today. But it's a space I just wanted to open up to share the extra stuff that doesn't make a Sunday morning sermon and hits the cutting room floor, but might be interesting to you as well. So next week at 6 o'clock um, in here, we will we'll talk about those things. Did I miss anything? Um... Yeah, finally, the last thing is we realized I missed um, that, what, that even though we all have these very differing views on how the world may end, there is one theme that gets drawn through the whole thing, and I hope that we can hold on to that the whole time, is that through Scripture, depending on how, the, like, regardless of what, how we believe the world ends or, or what heaven looks like or hell looks like, one theme that, that does pull its way through in all denominations and all people who follow Christ is that there's this constant desire that God shows to pull us and draw us nearer to himself. And so regardless of where we come to, we'll hold on to that as we try to wrestle with all of these things. All right, we ready to get started? I hope so. So today, what we're going to be doing is we're going to, we're going to get this series kind of kicked off. Uh, if you're a history person, today is going to be one of your favorites. If you're not, stick with us. Yeah, there we go, right? A few of you, and some of you are like, oh, but sorry. So sometimes you've got to set it up to get to the next stage. So what we're going to talk about today is just the end times thing. We're not going to break it down into like millennium, post-millennium, tribulation kind of stuff, but we are going to talk about a particular passage that is often used to describe the end of the world. Uh, what we're going to, I'm just going to be real straightforward on where we're going with this today. Uh, what I want to hopefully look at is how to, how, is we're looking at a series of Jesus' words and try to understand what he was speaking to or and why and, seeing if, and, and actually looking to see if it has anything to do with the end of the world at all um, for the hopes of saying that how we look at the end of the world may actually affect how we live now. That's where we're going. That's the 10,000-foot picture. Is I'd be willing to bet I'd be, that if we polled everybody here right now, how many of you have ever thought about heaven or hell before? all of us, right? At some point, we let our mind go into this space, and we have images and pictures of what we think it might look like. I'd, be, I'd, be, I'd go as far as to bet that the majority of people, like in this room, most of you probably are followers of Jesus, maybe not all, but most people at some point in their lives have, have entertained ideas, whether you're Christian, non-Christian, whether you're Muslim or Hindu, at some point you've thought about how does this thing end and what happens next. Most of us have wrestled with heaven and hell and eternity at some point. And, we, and many of us probably have some pretty interesting ideas of what that looks like. Some of us probably have thought about it a lot, others more casually. How many of you, ever, how many of you have ever pictured heaven like this? No, it's black. That's not what it was supposed to be. There we go. That would be awkward, wouldn't it? So, like, you've got... Uh, you got St. Peter with his book and some gates, and you got to check in with them. My Catholic friends probably are that one, right? Or is not? Is it just my impression of, that Catholics think of St. Peter that way? Is that just my Protestant projection? Where are my good Catholics? Dave? Good. All right. He does. Dave, all right. There it is. Uh, but but we got, where does this image of heaven come from? Like, where, where do we get that, right? Or maybe it's like this, right? where you've got just the clouds and the gates, and maybe we all get some wings, we drink some Red Bull, what, you know, who knows, right? Where do these pictures come from? Or, on the other side of the coin, how many of you have pictured hell uh, like this? Well, this is, uh, let's go to the next one, Chuck, go the other order. More like this, right? Like kind of this dark, 
pit of fire and pokey things, right? Or maybe it was the previous one, which I realized when I was doing some researching today, medieval art is weird, guys. It's really weird. <laughs> uh, like, you look through it, and uh, the stuff they drew uh, is just strange. But, but this is a depiction of, of hell from medieval art. Like, where do these images come from, right? If you, if you can find me in the Bible, the place where the devil has a horns and pitchfork, or where God is a big white, a bearded white guy with like, like looks kind of like Zeus, but has like half cloud as well. Or where those, where all of those images come from. If you could help me find where those are in the Bible, I'd love it. So where does all, where do all of those things come? Because those images probably were familiar to a lot of you. That at least some point in your head, your thought is heaven kind of like that. Is it a place where I'm an angel in a harp and I play in the clouds? Is hell a place where there are these demons with pitchforks? How does that work? And the same is true when we talk about the end of the world. It's actually something that we as a general society are obsessed with. Uh, You do a quick search for disaster movies, and you'll find a lot of them, right? We're kind of obsessed with thinking we all love a good apocalypse, whether it's aliens, right? We've all seen this movie, right? I was... I, hopefully you have. Actually, I had a weird a dilemma today, uh, and I'll test it in a minute, where I wondered how obscure could I be with a movie picture reference and have the majority of you still get it. All right, we'll, see, we'll see in just a minute. But maybe, so we like thinking about the end of the world. Sometimes it's aliens. Sometimes it's radioactive uh, lizards, right? Uh, other times it's asteroids. How many of you know what picture this movie this is from? Too few people raised their hand. That's what I wondered. I wonder, how many, how many people under 30 know what that picture is? More than I would have thought. That's great. What is it? Armageddon, right? Now, if you, were a, you grew up in the 2000s, you definitely would know that one. It's a terrible movie, though. So if you were younger than, like, 30, I, why did you watch it? I'm just curious. Uh, but we, <laughs> the point is, though, that we love to think about the end of the world and all the different ways that it could come. We laugh at some of those things, but I actually think that these ideas uh, have a much bigger impact on what we actually believe about eternity than we would hope they would. In many ways, these images and their regular portrayal in pop culture have shaped our faith even because they're built to be sensational. And so often when we think about end times, sometimes it can happen when we watch a movie like Independence Day. And we start to think about our own morality. And that shapes the way then we, we, we interact with our faith a little bit. These movies are meant to, to scare us a bit, right? What if an asteroid was coming? Do, do we have uh, um, Ben Affleck and Bruce Willis to save us? I don't know, right? And Owen Wilson. And Steve Buscemi. So, you know, all of them. We need them all. <laughs> If you were to, and so in those spaces, they, they start to shape. And actually, for, for many people, the centrality of these topics in pop culture can make them believe that it's one of the central points of the Bible, right? That, that, that if we were to read through Scripture, that all we'd ever see is things about heaven or hell or where we go for eternity. If the world ended today, would you be in heaven was a theme that the church used to talk about often. For years, the sole purpose of the church, pun intended, was to be so incredibly focused on saving souls from hell that we forgot in so many ways the majority of Jesus' teachings were about experiencing the kingdom here and now. We've seen that as we've worked through the book 
of Matthew. That Jesus began his preaching career by saying, repent, turn, for the kingdom of heaven is all around you. It's something you can experience. That as Jesus is teaching, he spends the vast majority of his time not saying run away from hell. And we'll talk about hell next week. It is something he does talk about. But the vast majority of Jesus' time is said not, not talking about running away from hell, but running towards heaven. Running towards the kingdom life that we can begin to experience now and invite each other into. So like I said today, what I want to do is I want to take a little bit of time to look at some, some of Jesus' words that we've applied to the end times, see what they mean for us, and see how we can apply them to our lives now. So we're going to start in Matthew 24, verse 1, where Jesus says this, or the Matthew says this about Jesus. Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came to him to call his attention to its buildings. Do you see all these things, he asked. Truly, I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen, and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Let's just start there for now. So the Jesus and his disciples are walking in the temple. Uh, So what are they looking at? Well, what they're looking at is the temple of Herod, which we've seen a couple different times before. I think I've got a picture of it on there somewhere, Chuck. Big temple, there it is, Temple of Herod. Um, so they're walking around this particular building. The, the, I like this picture because it actually does show us the scale a little bit. If you can see those tiny little dots, those are people scaled up next to this massive temple structure. So you can imagine that if you are Jesus and his disciples, I've been, I've been on the edge of the wrecked version of this wall. Uh, you look up and it's massively high. The structure is amazing. Uh, the temple of Herod was known as the, is the second temple, right? We talked a lot about Herod through, as we've gone through Matthew. He's a terrible person, that's true, but he was a phenomenal architect and builder. History remembers Herod as Herod the Great because of things like this, because of his massive building structures all over Israel, and a ton of them are left behind. Now, just a quick history. The first temple is built in Jerusalem by David's son Solomon. Right? You can read about that in the Old Testament. And it was said to be a wonder of the world, spectacular in every way for its era. But we know that temple was destroyed in the Babylonian invasion. And so Israel has no temple, at least not one like like as grand as Solomon's. They had other little structures for the time being, until Herod comes along. And history tells us it was Herod's goal to build a temple better than Solomon's temple. That makes total sense from what we know about Herod. He always was trying to one-up. and so, he, and so he builds a pretty magnificent structure. The first century historian Josephus writes, To strangers as they approached the temple, it seemed in the distance like a mountain covered with snow, for any part not covered with gold was dazzling white. Apparently the, the, te- the, the, the Herod's temple was absolutely gorgeous. Just based on the footprint left, the temple mount that we still have today, was also massive. There's an argument to be made that Herod's temple here, this complex, was the largest dedicated worship a- area to a single de- deity in the entire world. So we're talking about an absolutely massive structure. So Jesus is walking with his disciples and tells them to look up. And what is he asking them to see is all of these magnificent buildings. But why is he doing that? 
Well, this is where the context of the rest of Matthew matters, because what Jesus has been doing this whole time has been pointing to the religious structures of Jerusalem and saying they've been found empty and wanting. And he looks up and he sees this magnificent temple, and he says, look at that, because that represents the things that we've been fighting against for these last few chapters. You can imagine that the disciples feeling, feeling like we've been pushing back on this thing, but as they stand next to this monumental structure, it could be really easy for them to believe, sure, we can push back on it, but how are we going to change that? How do we fight this monumental thing here? It's not going anywhere. You've got to assume they believed. And so Jesus says to them, Not one brick of this temple will be left on the other. So it's all, coming, it's all going to come falling down. Now, he, there's two parts to this. One is that he's speaking prophetically to say the structure that it represents is going to be crumbling. And two, he actually is being prophetic in the way of saying Rome's coming soon. We'll talk about that more. And so the disciples asked Jesus then, when will this happen? What, and what signs will reveal the end of the age? Which is a clearly loaded question. So let's read how Jesus responds. This is a long little bit here, so bear with me. Matthew 24, 4. Jesus answered, Watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name claiming I am the Messiah and will deceive many. You will hear words of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you're not alarmed. Such things much ha must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pains. Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you will be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other, and many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold, but whomever stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation, spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand. Then those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the housetop go down and take anything out of the house. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in, the, in those days for pregnant women in, the win in winter or on the Sabbath. For there will be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. If those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here's the Messiah, or there he is, don't believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and wonders to deceive. If it's possible, even the elect. See, I have told you ahead of time. So if anyone tells you, there he is, out in the wilderness, do not go out. Or here he is, in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as, for as lightning that comes from the east is visible in the west, so it will be with the coming of Son of Man. Whenever there is, wherever there is a carcass, there will be vultures to gather. Immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, the Son of Man will appear in the sky and all the peoples of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory and will send his angels with a loud trumpet call. And will gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of heaven to the other. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as the twig gets tender and the leaves come out, you know that summer is near. 
Even so, when you see all these things, you know that it is near, right at the door. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. So there we go. Easy, right? You guys all figured it out. Uh, I wanted to read the whole thing just so that we could spend a little bit of time recognizing how complicated this is. As soon as you sit down and actually try to break it down, you realize, my goodness, there's a lot going on here. And there's, it totally makes sense why people would interpret different parts of this differently. So what I want to do is I want to try to give us some insight, at least into the first part of it here, so to see if we can gain one perspective on this particular thing. Because our temptation is to read, through, read it through a 20th century lens, to look at it, and many people have then applied it to the end of the world. To go, this is the final coming, this is how all things will end. But I want to challenge us this morning to ask ourselves the question, what if that's not what's happening here? What if context changes everything? What if, what if Jesus is actually answering his disciples' question, when will this thing come and when is the sign of the end of the age, in a way that they could understand and actually meant something to them in that time? Which, in my opinion, as we'll see, is, is far more likely. Let's start just by talking about the messiahs. Jesus starts his response by saying, watch out, don't let anyone deceive you. Many will come in G my name, Jesus' name, to be claiming to be the messiah. Jesus is saying there, that, that people are going to come to claim to be the Messiah, like I have, and, and they're not that. And actually, throughout history, we saw that that was true. Actually, before Jesus even came on the scene and after. We've got a number of people who are documented around this particular time who had claimed to be the Messiah of Israel. One of the earliest ones we see was in 4 BC. It's a guy named Simon of Perea, who withdrew into the wilderness with an estimated 20,000 followers. Right, he claimed to be the Messiah and gathered his people in that space. Now, Rome didn't like that. They didn't like it when people claimed to be Messiah, and especially if they're going to gather people to possibly fight Rome later. So Rome then rode in and squashed Simon entirely. So he's gone. 6 AD, a guy named Judas of Galilee. He resisted Rome by encouraging people to not register for the censuses. Like the censuses, the same ones that we see Jesus having to, or Mary and Joseph having to go to Nazareth for. Josephus credits Judas with founding a group that we've come to know as the Zealots. Right? Judas, but Judas then is also killed by Rome. Those Zealots persist, and we'll get back to them in a little bit. We also saw another guy between 44 and 46 AD, about 14 years after Jesus, a guy named Theodos, which is Greek for flowing with water. It's a Greek name, but it's a Jewish rebel. He claimed to be the Messiah and led a short-lived revolt against Rome, but eventually was also crushed and forgotten. So before Jesus comes on the scene, there were people that were claiming to be the Messiah. After Jesus leaves the scene in, in, in bodily form, right? He's still with us, obviously. But in that way, we see other people claiming to be the Messiah, and so right off the bat, when Jesus says, watch out for people claiming to be Messiah, we can see that it could be anchored right into the time the disciples were living in. We keep moving. Jesus says, well, there are going to be wars and rumors of wars. Now, throughout history, if you've done any study of the Jewish history at all, you realize the Jewish people are notorious for revolting. They do it all the time. 
It's actually, they're, they're a thorn in every occupier's side, which I don't suppose is a, that's not a comment on good or bad, but they just re, re, rebelled a lot. So all three of the guys that we just looked at, all three of those people who claim to be uh, Messiah, all led rebellions. But we also can go back to someone like Judas Maccabee, leading rebellions that way. Right? The rumors of wars, actually, throughout this time would probably be pretty easy to understand. Because you had all these little rebellions that popped up all over the place, and Rome would continue to come to squash them. But there is one massive war after Jesus' life that I want you to know about, because I think it matters a lot to what we're going to be looking at today. It's called by historians the Jewish War, or the Great Jewish Revolt, which begins in 66 AD, during the reign of Emperor Nero. Maybe you've heard of him before. Um, he was insane, um, but then again, so was Caligula, uh, probably Tiberius, um, very likely Domitian. Um, so kind of that was kind of the Roman emperor's thing, is to be insane. Um, it's amazing how many of them went nuts. Um, almost all of them, actually, which is interesting. That's a, just a side book. No. But in 66 AD, um, uh, a revolt starts with a group of Jewish rebels, and we've already talked about them, that they were known as the Zealots. The Zealots had become powerful under the horrible rule of Nero. Nero was notorious for persecuting Christians and Jewish people as well, and were able to gather a force to revolt against Nero and try to expel Rome from Israel. So they fought. Nero fought back. He sends his military general, uh, Aspasian, uh, who would later actually become emperor of Rome, um, to crush the revolt. And so Vespasian begins by invading Galilee. If we have the map, Galilee is in the northern part of Israel there. So he came in from the north. <clears throat> and, uh, and he begins making his way towards Jerusalem. Now, interesting side fact for history nerds. It's nothing to do with the sermon, but it's really interesting anyway. Vespasian rides into the north, and the leader of the rebels in Galilee is a man named Yosef ben Mehetayu. You're like, oh, cool, that's an interesting guy. Uh, but you've actually heard of this guy before, because he fights against Rome. Um, he, the, Rome actually besieges the city he's in, a six-week siege, and Yosef actually surrenders. He, he's captured then um, by Vespasian. But Vespasian likes him, finds him to be intelligent, and so he decides, rather than killing him, to make him into a slave. But a Roman, a Roman general doesn't want to have a Jewish-named slave, so he changes his name. And Yosef becomes Josephus, Flavius Josephus, Josephus, the guy that wrote all our histories, was actually the guy uh, that was fighting against Rome at the beginning of the Jewish revolt. Anyway, not a lot to do with the sermon, just kind of an interesting thing, right? Yeah, Micah, thanks. I needed it. I'd look at you for at least the fist, because, we, yeah. Well, anyway, Rome continues to fight in the Jewish rebellion until 70 AD, when Vespasian's son, Titus, besieges Jerusalem and destroys the temple. Got a picture of what the temple looks like today. That big, beautiful building is rubble. Uh, it's fascinating as you stand outside this wall because some of these, some massive stones were on this corner, and the, what Rome just did is just push them off the top. And so you have thousands of tons of rock falling, and the dents of where they hit is still there, um, which is, I don't know why that was so weird to me. Like to actually see the dents of where the rocks fell kind of made it feel real. Um, but it's crazy because they pushed all of these rocks off and destroyed. The temple. So the first part of Jesus' prediction has come true by 70 AD, that, the, that, that this massive temple structure has been destroyed. 
that we've seen messiahs come, that we've seen wars and rumors of wars. What about earthquakes and famines? He said that's part of it too. Well, we have those too. Historians provide us with five significant earth, earthquakes that would have affected the first century people after Jesus. We see in Crete in 46 AD a massive earthquake. Rome, 51 AD, our, our, uh, our, Ape, Apeia, I don't know how to pronounce that, 53 AD, Laodicea, Heropolis, and Colossae, which were the tri-cities, a massive earthquake hits in between those and destroys all three towns. Campania in 62 AD, well, we, we see these massive earthquakes affecting the region at that particular time. Famine, same thing there. There was a massive famine in Rome from 41 to 54 AD during the reign of Claudius. And in that reign, it's estimated that around 30,000 people died in Rome alone because of how bad the famine was. And just to be clear, this history that we're seeing here is not hard to find. It's not even Christian history. It's just basic Roman history. It's pretty well documented and available. It doesn't take much to find, and you can see how it's all matching what Jesus was saying was going to happen. So Jesus says the end is coming. The end of what, though? Well, the disciples asked, when, when will be the signs of the end of the age? Which we sometimes interpret as being the end of the age of humanity. But that's almost certainly not what they meant. For Jewish people, ages are make, marked by major movements in their history. So in Jewish history, the wilderness section would be an age, the age in which they wandered. The time in which they go into the promised land was an age. So the time of Joshua and Judges would have been an age. Then you had the age of kings, in which you had the kings, you had the, you had the united kingdom age, you had the divided kingdom age, you had the kings in the midst of those spaces. The exiles would have been considered, it, like when you go into exile, thou you considered that an age. The time of the Maccabees would have been an age. These, all of these movements kick off new ages inside of the Jewish minds. So what we're talking about then, when they're asking what will be the sign of the end of the age, they're talking about what will be the end of the second temple era. Remember the context we're in. We're walking next to the buildings that are the temple. They're saying this is the current religious structure that, is, that, that we're living in right now, and this massive building uh, is a representation of it. You, Jesus has just declared that it's going to be broken down and fall, and meaning the fall of that structure as well. If the temple falls, so does that structure of Jerusalem. And so it's, a, it's exceedingly likely that when the disciples are asking when will be the end of the age, they're talking when is the end of the second temple age which we've just seen, 70 AD then, is clearly the end of an age because the temple is destroyed. Titus burns it to the ground and we only have the mount left. And Jesus even gives us a warning of that with the language of Daniel. He says, when you see the abomination that causes desolation, you know the end has come. Now this... Does anybody know what this passage is usually applied to in pop culture? The abomination that causes desolation is the... It would be the Antichrist if you were going to go in pop culture, right? So that's what some people have applied it to. I want to suggest, though, that that's not what Daniel's talking about. So in the book of Daniel, Daniel, that's the first place that Daniel uses the phrase abomination that causes desolation. Um, during the, shortly after the time of Daniel, uh, the Greeks occupied uh, the region of Israel. After Alexander the Great died, 
he divided up his, his country or his territories between his four generals. There were two generals that, that mattered for Israel's history. You had the Potomies and you had the Seleucids. Those two Seleucids were in Israel, the Potomies were in Egypt. And throughout their history, they'd fight each other often. Well, after a number of generations, a man named Antiochus, Antiochus um, rose to be the leader of the Seleucids. Now, Antiochus is notorious on the world stage. So every once in a while, we say we get to throw up people who are the worst of the worst. Antiochus gets to be one of those. You have Nero, Domitian, Hitler, and Antiochus. They get to live in that space. Antiochus is an incredibly arrogant person and actually changes his name from Antiochus to Antiochus Epiphanes. Now, what Epiphanes means is God manifest. So Antiochus believes he's God manifest. Well, anyway, long story short, uh, he decides he's going to try to take Egypt back from the Egyptians. He also hates Jewish people and hates that his region is Israel. And so he, he's very oppressive to them before this time, but he rides to Egypt to attack the Potomies in Egypt and loses badly. Gets his butt kicked. Word comes back to Jerusalem that Antiochus has lost, and they say, and he's also been killed. So the rumor is that Antiochus lost the battle in Egypt and died in the process. Israel goes, perfect. We can't stand the guy anyway. He's dead now. It's time to revolt. Like we said, Israel does that from time to time. They revolt. They, they expel the Greeks from Jerusalem for very temporarily. Um, the problem was, though, uh, Antiochus wasn't dead, um, which, is a, which is a big problem when you think someone is. Antiochus had just lost a battle in Egypt. He's furious because of, it, because of it, then finds out that Israel has just revolted. And so he makes a declaration that he will wipe Judaism off the face of the earth. He will kill everybody who holds to the Jewish faith, and he'll massacre, he's going to massacre everybody and burn all of their books and their scrolls and Torah and everything. That's his plan. Antiochus rides back to Jerusalem, massacres the city, goes in, into the Holy of Holies, smashes the Holy of Holies, builds an altar to Zeus, and sacrifices a pig on it. Okay? The abomination that causes desolation. Pretty easy to see, right? It would be harder for him to be more blasphemous than that, right? Only the high priest goes into the Holy of Holies. Building an altar to Zeus in there is crazy. Uh, and then obviously sacrificing a pig is a direct uh, attack against the Israelites as well. So it's clear in the book of Daniel, he's referring to Antiochus as the abomination that causes desolation. What Jesus is doing here is a callback to history. When, a, when you see a foreigner standing over the destruction of the temple, this age is over. And that's what happens. Titus rides in to Jerusalem, burns down the temple, and stands over it. And it truly does truly does end. We're going to, have to fix that before next week. It truly does end an era, an age of Israel. Rome actually, after the fall of Jerusalem, systematically tries to wipe Israel off of the, of the map. They, they, they fight until their final stand on Masada, which that's an interesting story for a different day, uh, and then Israel is no more. The actual uh, place that, that we know as Israel then doesn't exist until 1948. So from, from the destruction of the temple in the 70s and then the subsequent removing of Israel from Israel, then, we, then, then Israel just trades hands. 
The Muslims are in there for a time, the, the Turks are there for a time, the Crusaders go in there for a time, and it just, but the actual nation of Israel as a sovereign nation is gone until 1948 after World War II. And so what we've been able to see through all of this is that you can see, one, the complexity of how, of what, how we understand this end time stuff, and also we understand that a lot of it is tied with, with history and how these things work their way out. Finally, the Son of Man coming in the clouds. What do we do with this last bit? Well, as the age of Jerusalem ends, does the, the kingdom of Israel ends, but does the kingdom of God end? No. Why? Because we've gathered under the banner of Jesus instead. The true Messiah, announced by angels and trumpets, who darken the sky at his death, and we'll actually see that later on in Matthew, it's all wrapped up in Jesus' words at the very end of this long section that we read. Truly, I tell you that this generation will certainly not pass away until all of these things have happened. And so what we see is that we see that even though Jerusalem falls and the, central, the center of, of, of um, Yahweh worship and now is, is now decentralized entirely out of Israel, but then it spreads across the entire world through the Holy Spirit. So why do we just give you all of that history? What's the point? We've blown up some of the pop culture myths around end times, but so what? We won't use, maybe use this section of Matthew for end time predictions anymore. If, by the way, anybody that tries to do the math to figure out when the end is coming has always been wrong, so let's just not do that. But, but what do we do instead? See, I think it's really easy for us to get caught up in the predicting of the end of the world stuff or dramatizing how it will happen. It's easy for us to focus on passages like this and then focus on the destruction that we see. The temple was there, now it's not. The, the entire world will be, here, will be over at some point. But I think that causes us to miss the point. Jesus tells us in Scripture that the broken things of this world will eventually pass away. In the case of the broken institution of the temple, he's declaring sooner than later. But what we see actually if we, as we read through the rest of Scripture is that that isn't what we should be focused on. Jesus said the temple is passing on, but the kingdom persists. The center of your religious life isn't a building anymore, he says. It's going to be me. That we centralize on him, and out of that comes the rest of our faith life. Over the next few weeks, we're going to continue to explore what's myth, what's pop culture, when it comes to things like heaven and hell or the rapture, but not because we want you to scare you away from hell. I don't think that's Jesus' intention. But instead, I think what we see here in this passage is that we look ahead to eternity to give us a model of what things could look like now. By, by, by removing some of the pop culture imagery of what the end of the world looks like or what heaven or hell looks like, we remove the temptation then to become obsessed with that and, and then forget that we're supposed to be building a kingdom life here and now. The reason that Jesus wants to point us towards what eternity would look like is he says, I want you to imagine what a world without brokenness would be like so that you can begin to work towards it now. Does that make sense? I think it's really, really important for us to have clear images of what the Bible actually says about the end of time, what the Bible actually says about heaven and hell, 
Because you say, and all, by the way, Jesus talks far more about heaven than he does hell, but we'll, we'll tackle both of those things. So that we can understand what are things we should avoid now because they'll bring us into a hellish-like existence and what things we should be walking towards because they can actually lead to a fullness of life that we can experience. We study these two things because our concept and our imagery of what eternity looks like should be continually and constantly shaping our life now. Over the next few weeks, we're going to talk about exactly what that looks like. Not this morning so much. But I'll argue that in Paul, he, Paul that in, at the end of, the, of, of the 1 Corinthians 13, Paul lays out kind of the big three things of, of what our faith life looks like. He says, and then these three remain. This is faith and love, the greatest of them being love, right? That's obnoxious, sorry. Uh, greatest of these being love, but the third one is hope. And I think it's, the hope is the one that we so often, I, I at least have the hardest time wrapping my head around what that means. If faith, hope, and love are the three biggies of faith, love makes sense to me, I get that, we should care for each other. Faith makes sense to me, I trust in God. But what is hope all about? And I actually think this is where hope lies in the midst of it all. That as we understand where we're going and what we should be striving for, it gives us the tools to experience it and share it with others now. So I'd encourage you through this whole series to continually ask yourself, what are your pictures of eternity? What does heaven look like for you? Have you thought about it? If not, I encourage you to do that. And it's not wings and harp. Um, though I suppose if you're musical, you probably would have a guitar. That'd be awesome. I don't know. But picture, but, but really what I mean by that is when you're looking at your day-to-day -day life, ask yourself, is this something that I'm experiencing right here? Is it, is, it, is it giving me a taste of what heaven looks like or not? If it is, drive towards it and share it with someone else. The contrary is too, true, too. I actually believe that, that in some literal ways, we can get little tastes of heaven now. We can get these little experiences that are almost transcendently big. Maybe you've experienced them before where you try to describe it to someone, it was this, this overwhelming amount of joy or peace or patience or kindness or goodness or something like that. And you've experienced that in this deeply profound way and then you try to tell someone about it and you couldn't find the words. Does anybody know what I mean? I think those are actually literally little tastes of heaven. Uh, I've used this analogy before. When I, was in, um, when I was in high school, I took a trip to Guatemala, uh, a mission trip there, and one of the days, I think I've shared this here before, so sorry, I'm going to do it again. But one of the days, we're sitting on top of a mountain. <clears throat> we had given some medicine to this, uh, this village. We're sitting on top of a mountain in Guatemala. And it was a gorgeous day. And underneath me, clouds rolled in. So I'm sitting on top of this mountain. sun's above me. I can see other mountain cliffs. And the whole valley is filled with thick cloud, right? So you can imagine, like, how awesome that would be, right? Uh, that, for me, was one of those transcendent moments, those moments in which I got to taste a little taste of what heaven looks like, uh, where I got to experience that there's something great and hopeful coming, and I can already taste a little bit of it now, and that I can drive to helping other people find those places. I actually have a photo of it, though, and if I were to show you the photo, you'd go, yeah, it looks kind of cool. I'm like, yeah, but you don't get it. There's something so much more there, right? We study heaven, we study the end so that we can understand those moments for what they are and share them with other people. What we'll see next week is the contrary to that is true as well. That we can get little tastes of heaven here on earth, and hopefully many of you have experienced a lot of those. But it works in reverse as well. 
that in that same way, there have been moments in our lives where we can brush up against hell too, right? My guess is many of us have experienced that. Moments in which there feels to be a weightiness or a darkness or a heaviness. Moments in which it feels like the, the things are pressing down on us or we feel shame or we don't feel like we're, we're loved or cared for. In the same way that I think we can get those little tastes of heaven, I think that we can brush up and get little tastes of hell too. Anybody ever experienced that? Yeah. Throughout this series, what we're going to be doing is we're going to be looking at those things not to scare us away from hell or, 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 or scare us away from like asking, do you know where you're going today? Though hopefully that's something you're wrestling with too. But to try to gain a bigger understanding of what the kingdom life looks here now so we can encourage and, and prompt each other to experience more of those little tastes of heaven each and every day. But also know what the downfalls and drawbacks of not doing things God's way are. Not because he's angry Zeus lightning bolt that's going to send you to a place with demons with pitchforks, but because we don't want anybody to experience the brushes against hell. Our hope is that we can do a good enough job to understand both of those that we can resist and walk away from one and run towards the other. I think it's good. it can be an exciting series if we're willing to wrestle with it in that way. I'm not sure we're going to be able to break down all of the details of exactly what heaven's going to look like. I know I can't. Unless one of you gets an amazing vision, we'll talk. Um, probably won't let you have the stage, though, because I'd be really skeptical. <laughs> probably won't be able to break down all those things, but the hope is that it will drive us into a deeper hope for the future and a deeper th that which then enhances our faith and our love for God and for each other. So hopefully, uh, you'll enjoy the next few weeks' journey together. So will you pray with me? Father God, we just want to come before you this morning and recognize that the hope you provided is amazing. Lord, we pray that, that today as we go through our days, that you help us to experience little tastes of heaven, little tastes of transcendent hope and joy that we have, uh, that, we're, that we may run into today whether it be as simple as a child laughing or the sunshine or just the feeling of your peace and presence with us, may we, may we be aware of the kingdom that's all around us and actually brush up against those little tastes of heaven. Lord, for those of us who are here this morning who are wrestling, wrestling with, with feeling like they're brushing a little bit too close to hell right now, Lord, I pray that that you let them know that they're deeply loved, that your desire is no matter what happened or how badly they have fallen short this past week or today, they are still, they, the thing that you desire most for them is for them to come back and experience what heaven and your presence are like. May we be a community that is constantly striving to produce heavenly experiences here together as our community, as we care for each other, but also for the world around us. May we do the work required to understand what the end looks like so that we can start shaping eternity now. Amen.